Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, please. This is my Farfel mug. How many of you remember who Farfel was? Well, that's sad. That's so sad. Farfel was a, a ventriloquist puppet. Uh, Jimmy Olson. It was a TV show. And uh, one of the early efforts at product placement connected this guy with Nestle Quick. And Nestle Quick, if you don't know what that is, is a powdered chocolate. You can put it in milk, make chocolate milk, <laughs> put it on ice cream, mash it all up, make chocolate ice cream. Got to work like a beaver to get it all worked in there. But You could get one of these with two proofs of purchase from Nestle's Quick and, you know, $1.95 or whatever the shipping handling was when I was, uh, you know, that tall. And, uh, but in our house, either because of the legalism or the poverty, we couldn't buy two boxes of Nestle's Quick at once. We had to buy one and eat it and then get the other one after that. So, oh, it was, it was a killer waiting. But we finally got those two proofs of purchase and I got my Farfel mug and all was right with the world. Until I was in about 5th or 6th or 7th grade and my sister and I were washing dishes and she dropped my Farfel mug and she broke it. Sisters, brothers, what are you going to do? You can't live with them and you can't do them bodily harm and get away with it. I tried that too. I want to talk about these brothers and sisters, though, today. God says we're all brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And the question I want to ask today is, how are you going to get along with these brothers and sisters? I believe that the first part of Philippians chapter 1 gives us an important, important glimpse into how the Apostle Paul was able to genuinely appreciate all of his brothers and sisters and not just some of them. Follow as I read, please, from Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Last week we looked primarily at verse 6, in which the Apostle Paul enunciated the great truth, uh, one of the great truths that, that we understand contributes to our security as believers, our, our spiritual security. 
being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The reason why I believe that I am going to make it to heaven is because God is the one who is at work in me. I may be a weak sheep, but he is a strong shepherd. God is at work. He is going to do everything necessary to get me all the way to heaven. Now, if we turn this truth of this verse 6 around just a little bit, the other side of it, what the Apostle Paul is doing is looking at a group of believers like I might be looking at you today and, he's, and saying, I am confident that God is at work in you. I am confident that the God who started a work in you is going to complete it all the way until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we learn an important truth about getting along with our brothers and sisters, and that truth is this. We need to see that God is at work in our brothers and sisters just as he is at work in us. When we look at our own lives, it's easy for us to see our own difficulty. Um... If most people were honest when you say in the morning, how you doing today? They would say, well, let me tell you how tough my life is. And, you know, they might talk about a physical challenge, maybe a medical issue that can't be resolved. They might talk about uh, the argument they just had with their family that's like the argument they have every day. They might tell you about uh, the speeding ticket they got because they were trying to get to work on time. They go on and on, and all of us look at our own lives and say, my life is tough. I've got this, I've got that, I've got the other. And that doesn't mean that we're pessimistic, but what it means is when we look around at other people, there's a real temptation to go, my life is tough. You're eating ice cream every day, but my life is tough. That's the way we are because we're prideful human beings. We have temptations. And we look at our temptations and we say, Oh, well, you know, the way that I was raised set me up for this temptation. Or the family in which I currently live has made it hard for me to walk with the Lord. We go to work and there's somebody who's hard to get along with. We go to school and there's a teacher that's not reasonable. We have great desires and dreams, but not a lot of progress. We have habits that we need to conquer. And so what we do, wisely, is we focus on the progress we have made, not the lack of progress. We say, well, you know, I'm... I'm working on this particular thing, and, and I'm not where I need to be, but I'm not where I used to be. And that's a good thing. That's really what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. We are sympathetic to our own lack of growth because we say, wow, look at the difficulties I'm facing. Well, you know, it's understandable the way I'm doing things. We expect others to be forgiving of our weaknesses because we have such hardships. In short... We look at our lives and we look at verse 6 and we say, I am so glad God is at work in me and I'm so glad that He will complete it. And we're thankful that God doesn't give up on us because of our lack of whatever. And I believe one of the things that the Apostle Paul is telling us is that's exactly how we should be looking at our brothers and sisters. 
We should be looking around at them and realizing they have a difficult life too. In fact, if I was to summarize it in one word, I would say the word for that attitude is, wait for it, love. Lo and behold, Christ said the true mark of a disciple is to love other people. Love suffers long or is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. doesn't look at other people and want what they have. Love does not parade itself as though everything is so good or so bad or whatever. Love is not puffed up with pride, does not behave rudely, doesn't seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love thinks no evil and literally doesn't keep a record of wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in iniquity or the downfall of others. Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In the King James translation, the word that's that's often translated love is the English word charity. And in the day, in 1511, when the King James was translated, they, the word charity meant to be loving. And literally, the word charity means, means to give something to somebody. And, and in a way, that's, that really is perhaps a better definition to our way of thinking of the word love than, the, than just the word love, because we tend to think love is like a warm fuzzy that we're sharing between each other. Whereas God says, this kind of love right here is the kind of love that comes around and says, what do you need? How can I be sensitive to you? How can I care for you? It is a, it is a charitable kind of love. And so I want to suggest to you that if you're going to really appreciate your brothers and sisters, you need to look at them through the glasses of charity. You need to look at them through the glasses of charity, the lens of charity, to look at them and say, you know what? God has saved you the same way he saved me. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. I see your imperfections, but I also see your progress. I see the sin that you're stopping and the righteousness that you're starting. I see your service to the Lord. It's a blessing. We need to be as charitable toward others as we are toward ourselves, and as we would like them to be toward us. We need to be charitable toward them. I am confident that God's in work in you. There's a temptation for us to, to be frustrated, to be provoked. When other people aren't moving along quite as fast as we are, we need to have an attitude of love, an attitude of charity. We need to see that God is at work in our brothers and sisters, just like he's at work in us. The second thing that we need, attitude we need to have if we're going to be thankful toward our brothers and sisters is we need to be committed to our brothers and sisters as partners in the Lord. Partners in the Lord. Look at verse 7. He said, I'm confident that God's at work in you just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart in as much as both in my chains 
and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. You are partakers with me of grace. The word partaker is a compound word, and the part of the word is the, the word that's most often translated fellowship, and then the other part of the word is, is a word that means with, with fellowship. And the idea of, of partnership seems to be the word, thing that comes through the most. And then when he says, I have you in my heart, literally he says, I'm, I'm holding you in my heart. It seems to me that this idea of holding and the idea of partnership communicates something active, not passive. See, we look around and, and some people we naturally connect with and we naturally fall in with, maybe because of our age or our station in life or, or some interest we have. But the Apostle Paul said, you folks are partners with me and I'm partners with you. We're together in the grace of the Lord and I am holding you in my heart. Was, did Paul see them as partners just because he knew every single believer is placed into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit when they come to faith in Christ? Was he seeing them as partners because they sent him an offering? Oh, you're my partners. Thanks for sending me an offering. Was he saying they were his partners because he was lonely in jail and they sent someone to encourage him? I think all those things are part of this partnership, but I think the real basis of it is that phrase, I'm holding you in my heart. Um, I have you in my heart, and he says, uh, the, the, uh, the phrase here actually could be translated two different ways. Either I'm holding you in my heart, or you're holding me in your heart. And what I found interesting was a famous Greek scholar named A.T. Robertson said this, there's no way to decide which is the idea except to say, love begets love. Either Paul was, was verbalizing his commitment to them, or he was verbalizing their commitment to him. But either way, he said, we're partners. We're committed to one another. I'm holding you in my heart. All of us who have accepted Christ have become part of the body of Christ. But the question we have to ask is, do we see each other and treat each other like partners we are holding in our heart? It's very close to the, the idea of a marriage covenant. I, began, um, I, I became a police chaplain out in Boardman, Oregon, when the, the sheriff out there with a seven-man uh, sheriff department started a chaplaincy. I'd never even heard of it before, but all I knew was do what the sheriff says and ride around with police officers. So I started doing that. One day I was riding with this deputy and, you know, Boardman, Oregon and the, the, the whole of Morrow County is so sparsely populated that there, there might be no radio traffic at all on a police radio for, for a half an hour or an hour sometimes. I mean, literally. And so every, I can't remember if it was every hour or every half hour, the, the operator at the, at the office would call out and do a welfare check you know, they would just check in with each one of the units to make sure they were still out there and not, you know, some foul play hadn't come to them. And so I'm out riding, and that's how sparsely populated it is, and that's how far away backup is. And uh, I'm riding with this deputy, and, and here is a car that's been reported abandoned. It could be stolen. It's in kind of a remote place, and there's about three or four or five guys around it. And so he stops 
back a little ways, and he's going to go out and check this out. Well, that's a dangerous situation. He's by himself, outnumbered, and the uh, only thing he has is a chaplain, and uh, he's outnumbered. And so I'm looking this over, and I think, what can I do? So I get out of the car, and I stand next to the door, and I put my hand in my coat like this. And I just stand there, and he finishes his business, and there was nothing wrong, and it was, a, it was a normal, proper situation. It was their car, so on. He comes back, and he sits down, and he says, Are you packing? I said, No. He said, I thought you were. And I said, I wanted them to think I was too. I chose to see him as a partner. I could have taken the perspective based on a saying that I learned in Spain, which is, es tu problema. It is your problem. Because in reality, it was his problem. He's supposed to take care of me. I'm not supposed to take care of him in terms of physical safety. But I said, no, we're partners. I have to do what I can. If we're going to be committed to one another, we have to take an active view of partnership and say, how can I invest in people in a way that reflects the reality of being together in the body of Christ. What happens with this investment is it multiplies and comes back to us. Let me give you a current example. This is Tony and Grace Sanchez. They were here a couple of weeks for our mission, a couple of weeks ago for our conference, and they, they're over in eastern Washington. We're helping them with some things in their facility. Today, uh, Ben Sutton is either working there or on his way home from there, and Chuck will be going over this week, and, and we're working on these projects. But here's, here's the thing that, that I think mimics what Paul was talking about. A bunch of guys went the first time to Grandview, and our, our mission was to replace two bathrooms and a kitchen. We made a commitment to help them in a partnership sense. We said, we, our church is going to partner with them. We're going to go help them. And so we went to do this. We went and uh, started our work, but we got to meet Tony and Grace. We got to see their community, and in the process of doing what we committed to do and in spending time with them, we began to see them as partners and to hold them in our heart. And now there's a partnership, and, and we could say like the Apostle Paul, just as it is right for, for you all, because I have you in my heart in as much, as much as in my chains, the defense and confirmation of the gospel, that is the gospel ministry, well, you are partners with me of grace. I think most of you are committed to your brothers and sisters in Christ on some level. But the challenge that I think God wants to bring to us today is, does your commitment rise to the level of an investment where you're actually putting something in and contributing as a partnership? How should we contribute? This is the investment I want to talk about today because this is one of the huge investments the Apostle Paul made. We need to invest in our brothers and sisters through prayer. Now, now before you... <laughs> Before you say, well, that's not much of an investment, you, you wait till we get done here today. What the Apostle Paul says here, look at, look at verse uh, 9. And this I pray, 
This is, a, this is his prayer for them. This I pray. He's already said, when I pray, I'm thankful for you. Now he says, here's what I ask God for you. This is what I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. What the apostle does in these three verses is summarize the whole Christian life. The Christian life begins with a love for God and a love for others. When we believe in Christ as our Savior, we enter into a father-child relationship of love with God. 1 John tells us that not only do we enter a love relationship with God, but we enter it with one another. But the restored relationship of love isn't the end, it's just the beginning of the Christian life. Look at verse 9. He said, I'm praying that your love may abound or result in something. And so, while the Christian life begins with love, the Christian life grows out of that love with God's truth. And I think one of the great verses that summarize that is here. As newborn babes, that's, that's a, a reference to the new Christian, the new believer, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. He says, when you believed in Christ, you tasted. Was the Lord tasty? Was, he, was, it, was it good? Did you like it? He says, if you have tasted it and found it to be gracious or good, then desire the word of God so that you can grow as a Christian. And in Philippians 1.9, he says that growth takes on two forms. The first one is knowledge, and the second is discernment. The word knowledge essentially means experiential knowledge. And that doesn't mean something you've only learned by experience. It means you, you, you take in facts and ideas, and then as you live with them, you come to really grasp what those facts mean. When I took my class as an emergency medical technician, I studied CPR. And, and while the, the, uh, the amount of compressions and the amount of respirations has changed constantly over the years, there's still those two components. I took that class. Many of you have taken that class. When I became certified and started going out into the field, I did CPR for real. I gained an experiential knowledge that changed, it fulfilled, it completed the, the knowledge I had gleaned in the classroom. When we read God's word, we gain God's truth. When we go out and live God's truth, it becomes knowledge in us that can fuel our growth. The other key element here is discernment. And discernment seems to be practical insight based on knowledge, so that you can make choices. We all know that water smothers fire, takes the oxygen away, essentially. But I didn't know that you have to spray the water on the bottom of the flame, not the top of the flame. Until I went in the field and the, and, and the fire chief says, put the water down there. Okay. Okay. Now, 
The knowledge is the same, but the application of the knowledge is different. And, and so somehow what the Apostle Paul is telling us about knowledge and discernment is this. Solid food, that is the real meat of God's word, belongs to those who are mature, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The way you grow in the Lord is you take this truth, you take it in. In my opinion, the best time of the day to take it in is in the morning because then you've got all day for the Holy Spirit to go, hey, see that? Do that. See how this will apply right there? And you, and you make choices for God. You struggle with sin. You work to do righteousness and you make these choices. And as you do that, your senses are exercised and you become more discerning. And pretty soon, instead of getting right up onto the edge of doing wrong, you go, whoa, wait a minute. That's going to be wrong. And you become a discerning Christian. It's one of the constant challenges between older and younger people, both in the Lord and just in humanity. The older can see ahead and say, whoa, there's a problem, stay away. And the younger always have to go up to the edge and sometimes fall over to say, well, that wasn't so good. Your love for God needs to develop into knowledge and discernment. And the result of that growth will be wisdom to make the best choices. Look what he says in verse 10. Verse 9 says, you'll gain knowledge and discernment so that, verse 10, you can approve the things that are excellent. This phrase would literally read something like this, you'll be able to judge between differing things. Able to judge. I think it might be this sentiment here. Now, now the Apostle Paul wasn't saying there's no such thing as sin. But he said, outside of sin, everything is lawful. But not everything is helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. And so as a believer, we can look at certain behaviors and say, you know what? That's not going to be good. I'm going to go the other way. We can learn to be discriminating. We can choose between things. We can be able to approve the things that are excellent. As believers, we have to know the difference between good and bad and better and best. A child wants to eat cookies before dinner. A child does not want to go to bed or take a bath or brush his teeth. An immature believer doesn't know how certain behaviors and practices will slow him down in his Christian life. But through the regular learning and living of the Word of God, he or she learns how to make godly choices that result in a life that honors God. You see, this is the, the result. The result of good living is honor from God and honor to God. Look at verse 10. You may approve the things that are excellent so that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ. The word sincere means without hidden sins. It was used in the day of, of pottery that would be sold and if there might be a little a little crack or a little defect, they would put some wax on it and kind of color it up. And to the naked eye, it looked perfect. But if you held it up to the sun or you put hot things in it or whatever, you know, you could tell it was it was with defect. And so the word sincere became an advertisement 
on the on the on the pottery wall without wax. You know, all of our pottery is certified without wax. Well, you know what it, what it means when a used car salesman tells you something, right? Um, means take the opposite as truth. Um, my apologies to those of you that sell used cars. Um, to be sincere, to be without hidden sins, and then to be without offense means not hindering others in their God walk. Not hindering others. And the goal of this is until the day of Christ Jesus. The goal of the Christian life is to live so well that when we arrive at the judgment seat of Christ, we will be ready for a review. And the last phrase is used here. In verse 11, there's a result, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. What is, and the word fruit here is actually in the singular. Fruits is a, is a misunderstanding. To be filled with the fruit of righteousness. What is the fruit of righteousness? I think this is what the fruit of righteousness is. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be, this will be the result of walking with the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does, it shall prosper. The fruit of righteousness is maturity and strength. Be a person who is not rocked by every wind of doctrine and every wind of, of idea that comes along. Now, I want to summarize because there's a big point to what I'm trying to say. And the big point was that point number three. We need to invest in our brothers and sisters through prayer. Here's the summary of what Paul just said about the Christian life. Love should abound so that we become filled with knowledge and discernment, and the result of that will be the ability to approve or to discern things that are excellent, and we will be without hidden faults and without offense or hindering other Christians, and we will acquire the fruit of righteousness. That's Paul's summary of the Christian life, and that's what he prayed for his brothers and sisters. The Apostle Paul said, this I pray. Would you look in your bulletin, get this piece of paper out. Go ahead and take it out. Put it in your hand. The Apostle Paul prayed for Christians. Now, he was responsible for many, many church starts. And if you read 2 Corinthians 12, one of the burdens that was on him, besides the physical torment he went through, he said, besides that, the daily care of all the churches. Can you imagine feeling the weight that he felt, which was, I am responsible for getting God's truth to the Gentile world. Now, he knew he wasn't alone in that. 
But he knew he was that apostle, and that was his job. And so one of the ways he lived that out was by praying. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The question I want to ask you today, the challenge I want to lay before you today is, are you praying for your brothers and sisters? Are you really investing in them through prayer? Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to, to God for me. The word strive is, comes from the word that had to do with, with physical wrestling, contending back and forth. It was used of those who who competed in the Olympic Games. And, 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 and the idea, maybe the mental picture that should come to your mind today is that when two football teams get on the field and they're right there and, and, and the count is given and they come up after each other and they are pushing and pulling. Oh! He said, are you working like that in prayer for me? That's the word. Are you striving in prayer for me? The reason we publish this prayer sheet is so you can pray for people. There's a thought. <laughs> now, in one sense, there's not a lot of people there compared to all the people in Ferndale. And in one sense, if you stop and pray for every single one of them, one at a time, and mention them by name to God, that's going to take you a little time. I'm not suggesting a time frame as in you need to pray for every person every day. Um, my personal prayer plan is that I pray for 20% uh, of you every day for five days. That's my prayer plan. I also have... Some of these things, I have these things all written down on my prayer list. I have other things there as well. My question is, are you praying for these people? And especially my prayer is, or my, 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 my burden for you today is, are you especially praying for those who you may struggle to get along with? Because that's the beginning, I believe, of really loving one another. I have a, a, a retirement account. It's not huge. A little bit gets put in there every month. And it's in a mutual fund. And so every day, I look at the business page. I don't look at the stock fund, but I look at the business page because there's news about what's going on in the financial world and, uh, and, you know, lately, stock market's up, stock market's down. Stock market's up, stock market's down. And, and, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm watching that. I'm interested in the stock market because I'm invested in the stock market. You're all invested with somebody. If you're parents, you're invested with kids. Um, you have friends, you have loved ones. The question I want to ask today is, are you invested with this family? And I would submit to you that the beginning point of investment is prayer. You want to make an investment, start praying. Say, I don't know who those people are. doesn't matter. 
Because you've got Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11, that summarizes the Christian life. You can look at that name and say, God, help that person to let their love abound. Help them to gain knowledge. Help them to gain discernment. You could look at these people and pray for them the same thing you pray for yourself every day. You might learn something from the Word of God and say, Oh God, I need to be more like this. And so you could pray for that list that day and say, Oh God, help these people. I would submit to you that if you will invest in them, if you will see them as partners by investing in them through prayer, it will change how you connect to the body of Christ. Heavenly Father, help us. Oh Lord, make your word what is remembered today, not mine. Help us to invest in one another. Help us to let our love abound by our Christian growth and our investment in the body of Christ. I pray in Christ's name, amen.